As we now um, are speeding our way through uh, this book here this fall, Titus chapter 2 this morning, and we'll uh, move in even to chapter 3. You'll be excited to hear. You'll find that on page 998 if you want to use the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to just take that Bible right out of the pew rack and take that home as your very own. On Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, hear now the Word of God. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Our Father, we are now thankful for your word in which we can consider. We ask that you would bless us as we think about these truths. There's much for us to learn here, maybe not so much to learn, but much for us to do, I I should say, as you exhort us to live out the implications of the gospel which we have received. So we will need your help today. I trust there are some here, myself among them, that would do, to, do well to repent in areas of our lives that we might more faithfully resemble Jesus as we live in this wonderful land. We are, of course, thankful for Windswept Academy. We're thankful for the leadership provided by Anne and Ilhami, We are thankful, Father, most of all, uh, for these 95 students that are not only receiving a quality education in a place where one is not readily available, but are daily pointed to a Savior. And so we pray that you would bless that ministry, that you would grow your kingdom and work through the teachers and staff, that they too might join you in this great kingdom-building work there in South Dakota. We ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. In the year 1892, the Pledge of Allegiance was written by a man named Francis Bellamy, who was a socialist and a Baptist pastor. So those generally don't go together, but evidently they did in his case. As a socialist, he was very much convinced that utopia was a possibility if we simply could unite mankind. The original pledge was published for that end, to kind of coming out of the Civil War, to bring a unity to the states. First published in a children's magazine, it read, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, uh, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 25 years later, it was revised due to the growing immigration in America, there was concern over the phrase, my flag, and what that would mean. And so in 1923, they changed the pledge to read, not I pledge allegiance to my flag, but I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. A year later, the phrase of America was added. The pledge underwent its final revision 30 years after that, uh, during the spread of atheistic communism around the world, the words under God were added. President Eisenhower would say, once those words were added, from this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, 
every village and schoolhouse this patriotic oath and public prayer. So according to Ike, the Pledge of Allegiance is a prayer. Well, if you're an atheist, uh, you probably don't want to say this prayer. For this reason, Michael Newdow, the father of a third grader, challenged the reciting of the Pledge of Allegiance at his daughter's elementary school in uh, the great state of, anyone guess? Uh, there it is, California. Very good. You've been trained well. All right. Well, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, citing the First Amendment, agreed with him and declared the, pledge of, the mandatory Pledge of Allegiance in school to be unconstitutional. Now, I, I'm certainly not an expert in the Constitution, but I, let me just speculate here. I wonder if the First Amendment was written to protect the church from government control, not to prohibit the church or religion from having some role to play in America. And yet today, we use the Constitution to defend the right to house pornography in our public libraries and at the same time ban the Bible from our classrooms. For instance, in Virginia, an elementary school school girl was told to stop reading her Bible on the school bus for she, unbeknownst to her, was violating the First Amendment. We can now have students address their student bodies using profanity, though it's not welcome, often prohibited. They just ought not to mention God, unless you're using him, by the way, as a curse word, then perhaps it will be allowed. So what do we do as Christians? Many of us, of course, say, well, we need to stand up and fight. We need to fight for the morality and the ethics of our land. This, of course, has been the strategy of many, the strategy of the moral majority, sometimes called the religious right, where we should, as Christians, use our political and economic means to do our best to halt the digression of American morality. Gary Bauer, the former president of the Family Research Council, has concluded, based on that, idea, there is virtually nothing to show for an 18-year commitment. Kind of reminds me, this, this technique, it reminds me of a story that uh, I read recently in a book, I think in a book that the elders are reading. It's the story of a, a polar explorer by the name of Robert Perry, that he was on one of his polar expeditions headed north with his dog team at full speed. And at the day's end, he stopped and took a bearing, and he was amazed to discover that he was further south than he had been when he started the day, though they had been hustling north all day long. The mystery was eventually solved when they discovered that when he discovered he was traveling on a gigantic ice flow, and the ocean currents were pulling him south faster than the dog team could actually move north. I wonder if that serves as a good metaphor for the Western culture, that after decades of involvement, after millions of dollars, sin seems to be more predominant, more accepted, more marketed, more celebrated in our country than perhaps ever before. I wonder if there are some reasons why we're losing what some have called this culture war. I wonder if we're using the wrong strategy. Part of me would speculate that political power might not be the key to cultural reform. You, of course, know that when Jesus was arrested by a mob of armed men, Peter quickly drew his own sword to fight. In other words, he has decided, I'll match 
sword with sword. I will match your power with my power. And as a result, nothing really happened except some poor guy lost an ear. Well, Jesus, of course, heals the ear and he says to Peter, have you not forgotten that if I wanted to, I could call a legion of 12 angels to come and defend me? In other words, what Jesus is teaching Peter, and I think us, if we would hear him, is that we are to use different weapons. We are to have different strategies than the world uses. So Cal Thomas, the architect of the moral majority of the 1980s, which led to the Christian coalition, has said, quote, For Christians, the vision of worldly power and influence is not a calling, but a distraction. It is a temptation that Jesus himself rejected, not because it was dangerous, but because it was trivial compared with his mission. So let me suggest to you rather humbly today that the solution to sin in America is not the Senate. It is not the Supreme Court. It is salvation. And that the only way that we can change our nation is that we change its people one individual at a time. I think China is a wonderful case study for us that over the last 70 years, under the rule of an oppressive, atheistic, one-party communist regime, the church grew from 1 million people in 1949 to somewhere estimate between 80 and 100 million people here without any political power whatsoever. While the church in the land of the free out here in the West seems to grow increasingly politicized and increasingly ineffectual. And I would say not only is this perhaps the wrong strategy, it, it is a, um, an ineffective strategy, it's a bad strategy because here's my fear is that when we, when we are overly politicized as God's people, our opponents become the enemies to defeat instead of sinners we want to save. Now, I understand the anger that we sometimes face in our culture. I'm, I, too, am tired of the mocking. I'm, I, too, grow tired of professors rewriting history and activists, judges redefining morality and Hollywood telling me what the Bible means and all the rest. And we say, well, we just need to take back power. We need to defeat the enemy. And I wonder how much of that strategy comes. We need to, instead, instead of defeating, we need to love the enemy, as Jesus taught us. I wonder if love for enemy has any role in our culture war, in our political strategy. The second reason I don't think this culture war is winning is that it's not just the wrong strategy, but it's the wrong goal. Now, if you don't hate this sermon already, uh, this is where you start, okay? <laughs> Feel free to boo. Some of my more politically minded, in fact, you may not know this, but in my 20s, I was very politically active. Gave a number of speeches on my college campuses where people actually threw things at me while I spoke. And I became rather proficient in speaking and dodging at the same time. So if that makes you feel better, just go ahead and and just, you know, let it fly. But I, I wonder, my friends, if we have the wrong goal. I wonder if the mission... It's not the reign of a particular political party, but the reign of Jesus. Crete, to whom Paul's writing here, as Titus is their pastoring, is the Las Vegas of its day. I mean, it is full of sin all the way to the point of overflowing. And Paul, you'd notice, never said, okay, you need to start a campaign to change the morality of the land. You need, you need to mobilize the political might of the people in order to, to express themselves so that they can push back on this sin. Right now, of course, listen, now don't misunderstand me. We speak our, we live in a democracy, thankfully. We speak our mind. I speak my mind. I've voted in every election that I have had an opportunity to since the day I turned 18. We are to be involved. Run for office, if you like. Be involved in campaigns. But my friends, as a Christian, the mission is not to save America. 
It's to save Americans. That's the goal. And you read about Daniel, who served not one but two Babylonian pagan kings, both of whom bowed before God. How is that possible? Was it all the robocalls, right, and the political action groups? No, he simply lived out before them the transforming effects of the gospel. And is this not what Paul is calling for the church on Crete to do? Live in such a way that the people will watch and they will take note and the kingdom will advance. You saw earlier in that holiness code in chapter 2 that in verse 5 he says, Live this way that the word of God may not be reviled. And again in verse 8 we read, Live this way so that your enemies have nothing evil to say about us. And then again in verse 10, Live this way so that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Or as Jesus put it, we are to be salt of the earth. Light of the world. We, in other words, we are to demonstrate the transformation that we have received through Christ by living like Christ before the non-believing world, that we are to live distinct lives, that we might show the world what it is to be in Jesus. And so we've seen this, haven't we, in, in the book of Titus. We've seen how this looks in the church. We've seen it in the family. We saw it in the workplace. And now we look to our community, to our country, Specifically, I think Paul is showing us to put the power of God on display as citizens and as neighbors. But before we look at that, consider, first of all, that the Christian is a learner. A Christian's a citizen, a neighbor, but first of all, the Christian is a learner. You see what he says in verse 15? Declare these things. Teach these things. Again and again, we find in the book of Titus that Titus is to be a teacher, and all the Tituses that come after Titus, they too are to be a teacher. This is why I myself have given my, given my life to a teaching ministry. And we go book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That, that we are to hear the word of God and learn the word of God. Perhaps you heard of the young clergyman who never preached before and he wrote his bishop for advice. And he said, dear bishop, what should I preach about? The bishop responded, writing, preach about God, and preach about 20 minutes. Now, I agree with half that advice, clearly. We are to teach about God. And so we've seen in chapter 1 and verse 9, elders are to give instruction. Chapter 2, verse 1, teach about what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 7, in your teaching show integrity. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them. Verse 8, insist on these things. Verse, and now here in verse 15, we see declare these things. The church is to be a place of teaching. Now, it's not, not just a place of teaching. It's more than that, but it is not less than that. The church is to be a place of learning. It's Alistair Begg who, I think, said, isn't it interesting when school children are greeted by waiting mothers today, they arrive home from school with the question, did you have fun today? Did you have a good time today? Of course, whether they had fun is not the point, is it? Right? We want to know, did they learn anything? That's why we send them. We want them to learn something. So let's not be people leaving the church asking each other, hey, did you have fun today? You know, did, did he tell, tell lots of stories today? Was it any good today? Right? Did you have a good time today? No, the question is, did we learn something today? Declare these things, he says in verse 15. What things? 
Well, the very things Paul has just told him. If you remember at all, that he said, listen, about, about the grace in which has appeared and the glory which is coming and how that appearing grace and appearing glory impacts our present life. You teach them about the gospel. You tell them about Jesus. Preach Christ. Every time you preach, Titus and all other Tituses, preach Jesus. Do you know what makes a, Christian, a sermon Christian? Christ does. And so may it be in this pulpit forevermore that there's never a sermon given in which Christ is not preached. That's what makes it Christian. And, and he says, preach these things, remind them of these things. You see that in verse one of chapter three, remind them, remind them. And, and here's the problem, it's one of the greatest dangers of preaching Sunday after Sunday, the same people week after week, year after year, and it's just not for preachers, but any of you in teaching ministry, Sunday school classes, some of you have been teaching Sunday school for decades. You know, one of the greatest pressures is to be innovative, to be tantalizing, to be novel, come with some new perspective on something. That's why I find these words there at the beginning of chapter three so helpful, remind them. The teaching ministry is a ministry of reminding, not innovating. Peter could not have been more clear when he said, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, so I will make every effort to see that after my death, you will always be able to remember these things. Remind them who... Christ is and what he has done and the promises he has made. Remind them what we are in Christ and what we were outside of Christ and what we will be one day when we are complete in Christ. Remind them about man's fall, the need of the new birth, the power of the Spirit to come and enable us to become what we are in Jesus. In fact, you look all, down, all the way down in verse 8, and he says you need to insist on these things. You need to put your foot down. You need to take a firm stand on these issues. You need to give yourself to these things and avoid, verse 9, Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, don't deviate, Timothy. Don't give in to the pressure of being tantalizing. Tell them about Jesus. Commend Jesus to them. Don't you think they must have gathered the people of God there in Creed, perhaps long after Timothy was gone, and say, he just, you know, he just kept talk, talking about Jesus. It's just every time, it's just it's always, I mean, remember that time we were going through Ecclesiastes, and all of a sudden we're talking about Jesus, and Nahum, and Zephaniah, and Zechariah. Remember in Obadiah, that little sermon in Obadiah, and we're talking about Jesus, always about Jesus. We can't get through a sermon without hearing about Jesus. And we're so thankful he did. You know why? Because that's what brings the transformation. I mean, you read on in verse 8, he says, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, the understanding who Christ is and what he has done actually brings about a transformation. I was sharing with someone in the foyer just before the service. You know, you know what a, pa a preacher tries to do? A preacher uh, takes the passage, and he, he really does two things. He says, okay, what does it mean? He asks the question, what? And then he asks the question, so what? So he explains it and then tries to flesh out its significance. So the preacher asks what, and then he asks, so what? So that the congregation will now ask, now what? Right? So now what do we do with this information? How does it change us? Because it is intended to lead to a transformation. In fact, he says back in verse 15, this transformation should be furthered 
with a, he says, exhort and rebuke them. Plead with them, correct them, and do it. You look at that little phrase there, with all authority. Rebuke and exhort with all authority. With what authority? What, what is he talking about? Does, does the pastor have authority? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? In fact, he goes on there in verse 15. He says, let no one disregard you. I kind of wish he would have explained how he's to let no one disregard him. But to, there it is, nevertheless, let no one disregard you. Do you, do you know, um, you'll find this shocking, I think, that a uh, hundred Baptist pastors are fired every week of the year in America. A <laughs> hundred a week. Isn't that extraordinary? Okay. The uh, average tenure of a Southern Baptist pastor is just under four years. So they're, they're in church. Four years later, they're, they're gone. In fact, I was once fired after 18 months. So I'm above average, as you can see. Right? And many, many, many times the fault is with the pastor. In fact, the very church that ordained me in November of 2000, Crescent Baptist Church, has some time ago hired a man to lead them who, without checking references, and he had previously been fired by his previous four or five churches. And each time he was fired, he then slapped the church with a lawsuit. That was his, I think that was his ministry model, right? To do such a poor job that they're forced to fire me and then sue them for wrongful termination and get them to settle out of court. Right? I mean, there are some bad men in the pulpit today. Let's not be deceived. But sometimes, believe it or not, the fault is with the congregation. They failed to pray. They failed to encourage. They failed to follow. They failed to care. They failed to love. Instead, they have taken up the ministry of disregard. Now, I am not in any way suggesting that this is the case here in Hamilton Baptist Church. I don't have an agenda here. I'm simply declaring these things because it's the past, next passage in the book we're going through. In fact, I'm rather thankful and speak for Pastor Josh as well. I think that we feel loved and supported and blessed to be here. And we delight in the unity in the church, following the leadership of the church. But let me just put this in your heart. The Word of God says, to, of the pastor, do not disregard them. In fact, do not disregard them as they tell you how to be a Christian citizen, which I'm about to do just now. You notice Paul not only says that the Christian is a learner, but the Christian is a citizen. Christian is a citizen. The Christian is a neighbor. He goes on in verses 1 and 2, gives seven exhortations, which are very easy to understand and I think very difficult to obey. The Christian citizen is one who submits willingly, as you see in chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. Again, here he's speaking about authority. I think the way we relate to human authority shows how we understand God's authority in our life. He uses the word submit, which is a military term. It literally means to, to file under the rank of another. Now, perhaps I've seen too many movies, but uh, this is how I imagine it. When a superior officer tells a junior officer to drop and give me 40, uh, he doesn't say why, or he doesn't say I don't feel like it. What does he do? He, he, he submits. He drops and gives 40 because that man is an authority in his life. Right? Uh, uh, when you see the flashing blue lights in the rearview mirror, right, and you pull over to the side of the road, and you roll down your window, and you say, what do you say? You say, yes, sir. 
Is there a problem? Sir, right? Because this man has an authority. In fact, the, the day that Gideon was born, he was born in a, like an unchristian hour of like 3 or 4 a.m. And um, I, I, listen, um, labor, as you know, labor is difficult. And so I was very tired. And um, uh, so I'm, I'm driving home to get some rest. And um, I, I need some sleep. And you, I see the blue lights in the back. And, and I, I had a headlight out in case you're wondering what was going on there. And, uh, but I rolled down the window and said, yes, sir, uh, what have I done, sir? And I'm so sorry, sir, and, and all the rest. He's, that man is an authority over me. If he said, drop and give me 40, I could probably have given him four at that time, but I would have done it, right? Submit, he says, to the authority. Be submissive. You may disagree with the decision that is made, but you show respect for them. You show respect for the office in which they hold. You say, well, what if the government is evil? What if they're bad? What if it's run by the wrong party? Well, I do remind you that Paul is writing to Christians living under the Roman government, which is pagan and oppressive, occupying territory after territory. And so this is not instruction for people living in a blissful state, but for people living under a government that is far worse than any government that Americans have ever endured. And the instruction is clear, isn't it? Submit. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if your ruler is Caesar. It doesn't matter if it's Pilate. It doesn't matter if he's Trump or Clinton. We submit. In fact, it's interesting. You think about Daniel. gives us such a great examples of this. Daniel's name, uh, uh, when, he, when he was brought into captivity into Babylon, was, it was changed to Belteshazzar. This was some type of psychological deprogramming that Nebuchadnezzar was using on Jews now taken into Babylon. Daniel means God is my ruler. Belteshazzar means Baal's prince. So he goes, he goes his name, God is my ruler, to the devil's son. And what does he do? He submits. Yes, sir. That will be my name. Submit to the authorities. We use democracy, certainly. Thankful for democracy. But may we make sure that our democratic participation is submissive, loving, gracious, humble. Well, we might ask, well, is there ever an occasion in which we do not submit to the government? And, of course, there are, aren't there? In fact, you may be alarmed to know that Hamilton Baptist Church actually engages and funds illegal activity. Not here in America, but we do use our resources to smuggle Bibles into countries where they are illegal to be. We do use our resources to send missionaries to countries where it is against the law for them to go. You say, well, Pastor, how do you justify that in light of the clear teaching? Remind them to be submissive to authorities. Well, certainly that is the rule, but the Bible also teaches that there are exceptions to that rule. There are at least two. One, when the government commands evil, we are not to obey it. Again, in the book of Daniel, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that the Bible says in Daniel 3 that every man who hears the sound of the horn shall fall down and worship the golden image. They all were commanded to violate the second commandment, to bow before an idol. These three men did not. In fact, they declared they wouldn't. Be it known to you, O king, they said, that we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not submit in this command to sin. Another example, of course, would be the Egyptian midwives who would not do what the Pharaoh had legally commanded them to do. We do not submit to the government when it commands us to sin. Nor do we submit to the government when the government prohibits what God commands, the righteous acts. For instance, it is God tells us to tell other people about Jesus. Even though that's illegal in many nations, Christians should therefore do it. 
We see this clearly in Acts chapter 5 when the authorities said to Peter and the rest, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. But Peter answered, we must obey God rather than man. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then we read every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching that Jesus was the Christ. In many nations, it is illegal for Christians to gather, and yet Christians are commanded to do so. We do not submit to the government when it forbids what God commands. This might hit home to us in the coming days, even as a father. I think about the many nations who have outlawed corporal discipline. Sweden, Norway, Germany, Greece, Netherlands, 11 others. Spanking your child will land you in prison. Maybe that day is coming in America. My clear reading of the Bible says that to spare the rod is to hate the child. That we are to use the means in which God has given us. And so we will not submit, I trust, when the the government prohibits what God tells us to do. Nor will we submit when the government commands us to sin when God tells us not to. But every other case, we are to submit to the authorities. And the reason is, is because the authorities are established by God himself. You remember when Jesus was on trial, Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Your authority is from God. In Daniel chapter 2, we read God removes kings and sets up kings. In Romans 13, we read, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so, therefore, submission to government is submission to God. That's why Paul says in in Romans 13 verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. What that means is you don't get to pray over whether you meet the building codes or pay the minimum wage or or register your dogs, as I recently found out I need to do. Right? Or, or stand in that everlasting line at the DMV, right? We submit to God when we submit to the government, even when we pay our taxes. Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed. Now, I don't enjoy uh, paying taxes to the Infernal Revenue Service any more than you do. Income tax, self-employment tax, utility tax, sales tax, property tax, capital gains tax, auto tax, gas tax, dog tax, hotel tax, airport tax, inheritance tax, breathing tax. I don't care. I don't like any of them. You've heard the old saying, I trust. There are two certainties in life, death and taxes. And someone added, I just wish they came in that order. (laughs) But we are to pay our taxes. It's the will of God. Obeying God when we pay our taxes. And by the way, your obedience will be rewarded. So in a week or two, as I do twice a year, I will take some of my children and we will go down to the revenue office in Clark County and we will pay our property tax. And we will have a conversation about that. And one of the things that I think I'll be thinking about in light of this passage, that oh, submitting to the government is a submission to God, my submission to God is rewarded, that one day I'll be rewarded for paying my taxes. That will be the ultimate tax refund when God rewards that obedience. I also think it would be wise the next time you are camping in a state park or enjoying that your food has been inspected or you visit the public library or you watch your kids in a Little League game or have someone answer the phone when you call 911 and you drive on the road to church on Sundays, we can take pleasure in the rightful and good work of the government. 
and take even greater pleasure that when we submit, we are obeying God. I would suggest to you, based upon this passage, that Christians should be model citizens. We should be respectful of governing authorities. We should not be demeaning, maligning. We should not be the people who scream and shout. We should disagree with honor. Justin Martyr, who was John the Apostle's disciple, wrote to the authorities of his day, Everywhere we, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus Christ. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledge you as kings and rulers of men, praying that with your kingly power you will have sound judgment." Justin Martyr is right. Christians are to be the best of citizens. And when we are, we commend the gospel. We glorify God, which I believe is our ultimate goal. We are to submit willingly as Christian citizens. And then you see we are to serve eagerly. Serve eagerly. Look what he says there in verse 1, the end of that verse, to be ready for every good work. Now we saw in verse 14, if you remember last week, that we are to be zealous for good works. And now we are to be ready for them. This, I think, assumes involvement in our community, not isolation from it. Right? Faith does not remove us from society. It actually makes us a productive member of that society. And so we should be ready and eager to help our community. I think we should be supportive of the authorities and the rulers in our land when they are doing good work, when they are caring for the poor and the sick and the disadvantaged. You may not know, but on January 20th, this church is going to have an um, Orphan Care Awareness Sunday. And we are going to be thinking critically as we as people of God could come alongside the governing authorities in our area and help care in many ways for the orphans in our backyard. In fact, we will have government officials here at this church. The assistant director of uh, the Department of Social Services in Henrico County over Richmond. It's a dear brother in Christ, a friend of mine, Sean Rozier, is going to come and challenge us as how the people of God can partner with the government in order to care for those who need caring for. Maybe it's not orphans. Maybe it's schools. Maybe it's the poor. Maybe we're working for the welfare of the city. You know, when God sent the Israelites into Babylon, uh, he said to them, gave, sent them with this instruction, according to the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of that city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf. We are to be eager and ready for every good work. In fact, not just do every good work. You see what he says there in verse, uh, two, uh, verse 1, be ready for every good work. That is, we are to look for opportunities for good. We are to be poised and eager to bless those around us. I wonder if we start our day and say, Lord, give me opportunities to do good today. Help me to look for good. And, and then you'll be ready for the good when it crosses your path. You'll actually be excited when it comes. An opportunity for good. You'll see a, a, an opportunity to bless a coworker, or maybe bless your mom or a sibling, and you'll be excited. I get to bless them because I'm ready for good works. I'm excited for good works. By the way, to be ready for good works is to be ready to be interrupted, isn't it? As Jesus just shows us over and over again, I think sometimes we Northern Virginians, we pack our schedule so tight that, that there's no room to be interrupted for doing good. We're too busy when the good comes our way to do it. Instead, we should leave room for good. When the phone rings, when the plumber comes by, when we chat with the waitress, we ought to be, have a hard attitude praying, God, let me see if there is good work to be done here, that we should be good as God has been good to us. You also see that Paul, in verse 2, begins to address the Christian not simply as a citizen, but as a neighbor. Though the transition um, 
from citizen to neighbor is not exactly clear. I think there's some overlap into both. But you see, the Christian neighbor should speak kindly. Speak kindly. You see there in verse 2, speak evil of no one. Don't malign others. Don't slander others. We are not to have insulting words. We're not to have unkind words. You say, well, what, a, what about a politician? Well, I'm reading there in verse 2. You can read it too as well, I trust. Speak evil of no one. What about a lawyer? No one. Your neighbor, your fellow Christian here at this church, speak evil of no one. And in case you think I've climbed to some new height where I can give you these instructions, um, just ask my wife, right? Because I watch the evening news just like you do. And I feel the same moral outrage just as you do. And our tendency, therefore, is to malign, isn't it? Our tendency is to look at the other person sitting on the couch and perhaps even call names to the people that are doing this or that to our country that we love so much. In fact, to be honest, maligning politicians is somewhat of a hobby of mine. And listen, I mean, I'm, so this, I'm, I am guilty under the scrutiny of these verses. I tell you this morning, I need to repent. I may not be the only one. I wonder if we fill our minds listening to some guy who's always angry and always outraged that we will increasingly find it difficult to be Titus three Christians. I wonder if sometimes we let talk shows inform our political engagement more than the gospel. We should be known for building people up, not tearing down. We are to speak evil of no one. We are to give grace with our words. In fact, he goes on and says, avoid quarreling, doesn't he? Maybe your translation puts it, be peaceable. Right? We're not looking to win an argument. We're to avoid the quarrels. We're not looking to, to, to justify ourselves. We're to bear the wrong, just as Jesus has taught us and has shown us with our neighbor. We're to quick to forgive, as Jesus has shown us. We are to not be quarrelsome individuals. A man named Robert Chapman exemplifies this. He was a single man who pastored a small church in 19th century England and had a massive impact upon his community. Charles Spurgeon, who was his contemporary, called him the saintliest man in England. But not everyone liked Robert Chapman. In fact, a grocer in his community hated him. So much so that when Chapman took to open-air preaching, the grocer would walk by and spit upon him while he preached. And if he wasn't spitting... He was verbally attacking him every time he saw him. And Chapman only responded in kindness. On one occasion, some of Chapman's wealthy relatives were visiting for the week, and they insisted on buying the groceries for this single man, and they asked where they should go to purchase a cartload of food. Well, Chapman insisted they go to the grocery store of this man who had insulted him for year after year after year. Of course, they had no idea about the relationship between uh, these two men. They traveled to the other side, passing a number of grocery stores in order to get to this man's store, bought so much food they could not carry it home, and asked him to deliver it to the home of Reverend Chapman. The stunned grocer asked them to repeat the address. And And then he told the visitors they must have come to the wrong grocery shop. No, they said. Mr. Chapman insisted we come here. But when the grocer arrived with the delivery and Chapman answered the door, he there on his stoop broke down in tears. Chapman invited him in, led that man to faith that afternoon. Tells us in 2 Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. 
If we are always arguing, we will not commend the gospel. We need to absorb the wrong and keep the door open to talk about Jesus. We are to be kind and peaceable that God may use our witness to lead our neighbors to faith. In fact, he goes on, and Christian neighbor, lastly, is to show courtesy. Look what he says there in verse 2. We are to be gentle. Gentle. Are you gentle? Are you tender with others? That's what the Christian is to be. Especially those of less authority. Dads, would your children say you are gentle? Husbands, would your wives say you are tender? Bosses, would your employees say you are kind? Or to be gentle. You know, uh, men, how your, um, your drill has that torque control, that clutch on it? And, and, right? and when you're using um, kind of delicate uh, hardware, you turn down the torque to as low as you possibly can to do the job. Otherwise, you keep the torque up. You just drive, you're going to strip that nail. You're going to drive it right into the wood, right, the, uh, the screw. You turn it down. Well, we, we need to turn it down. And again, I'm guilty under the scrutiny of these verses. I, I could tell you time and again when I have had an abrasive word towards my children and I just see them immediately wilt before me. We should be as gentle as we possibly can. We should err on the side of gentleness. We should turn down the aggressiveness as far as we possibly can go. We are to be gentle, he says. And then, lastly... There at the end of verse 2, we are to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Be courteous. That's an old-fashioned word, is it? Do we even know what that word means anymore? Well, I looked it up. It has nothing to do with which fork you use or the napkin which you fold. This is about our hearts. We're to be gracious and polite. Or if you will, we're to be like Jesus. When you, when you run, listen, when you run into a Christian, the way you identify a Christian is not because of the, the cross hanging around their neck. You, after spending time with him, you walk away and say, you know, there's just something about that guy. That was a nice man. And you might even go home and tell your wife, you know, listen, I just ran into a guy, I was chatting with him, and, you know, I just tell you, it was just a good guy. And, 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 and he was polite and is courteous. In fact, we got talking about politics, and you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't think he ever had a bad word to say about anyone. All of this, is, we, we, we are to perfect courtesy, he says. And of course, this is just simply an extension of the change in which the gospel has brought. You notice who the courtesy goes to, by the way, towards all people. What about those who infuriate us? Yeah, all people, right? We're to show perfect courtesy and be gentle and be peaceable. And we are to speak evil of no one. Right? This, this should be pretty easy, right? I don't think so. So how can we do this? Where is the power? Well, I only know one source of power. I, don't, I think how we do this, I mean, it's, it's a one-word answer. What are you thinking? What word comes to your mind? I think about, oh, I'll take Jesus, or gospel, or grace. Any of those will be a passing answer. Right? I think we can only do this if we actually believe the gospel. That is, we believe we are saved by grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. See, what, what, here's the thing. Why can't I malign other people? Why can't, I, why can't I speak evil of those people who are foolish and unruly? And why can't, why can't I speak evil of those people who are full of malice and envy and hatred? 
Well, the answer is verse 3. Look what it says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what you were outside of Christ. So were you, Paul says. In fact, he says, after instructing them on how to live in society, he says, now, Titus, you have to remind them that they were fools too. You understand that outside of Christ, my brothers and sisters, I say as one of you, you were fools and disobedient and unruly and deceived and all all the rest, right? Right? I mean, we need to remember the pit from which we dug and the slime in which we swam. And we need to remember the capabilities of our fallen nature that once dragged us daily through the mud. And we loved every single minute of it. Remind them, he says. Remind them. He said, well, I'm not like that anymore. I'm not a fool. I'm not unruly. I'm not a hateful person. Well, the question is why? You just wise up one day? You just pull yourself together one day? I don't think so. Read verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. So here's the question. How can we speak evil of other people and all the rest that we would be just like if not for the grace of God in our lives. It's as if we were born blind and there's some new surgery in which we have now received sight and so we go around all day long slandering those stupid people who can't see. What you see, the only reason we're not like them is that God has done for you what he has not yet done for them. And so often I think Christians, they look at the world, and I'm guilty as well, and they see all its folly and, and it's all its evil, and rather than, 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 a, than a tone of compassion coming from them, what comes from them is contempt and disgust and even, I would say, at times, hatred. And we think it would do them some good if we shout at them or dismiss them. And I wonder if it ever occurs to us, well, maybe the better plan is to talk to them about Jesus. My friends, I'm so thankful Jesus didn't treat me that way. There was a time when I was full of folly and malice. And rather than maligning me, rather than hating me, he had compassion on me. He saw me as a sheep without a shepherd. See, the gospel, rightly understood, doesn't make us arrogant or argument argumentative, it makes us grateful, it makes us kind. The grace of God creates a fountain of humility in us, and we say, I'm no better than you. The grace creates a heart full of love, and then God, above all, I just want them to come to know you. You know John Newton, who understood these truths better than most, that slave trader turned pastor, he said, once I know two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. He is a great Savior, after all, he has saved you, hasn't he, Christian, and he has saved me, So great that out of his love and kindness for us, he died for the very ones who hated him. Died for those who were his enemies. I wonder, do you know that love? Do you know the love of Christ? Has he saved you? You see that, verse 5, see how it says, he saved us. Has he saved you? You know, the Bible says, if you confess through their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not by works. It's not by being good. It's simply by surrendering your life in faith to a Savior who died for your sin and then conquered death as a way that you might conquer death through him, that you would yield your life to him. For us who are Christians, you see, I trust that our mission is to live like Jesus, whether it be at home or church or office or school, neighborhood, and even in our country. And I, I don't, maybe I'm the only one here, but it seems to me that the land in which we live is, is, is um, growing in its polarization. That it just seems like we live in a land in which we're critical and quick to argue and quick to malign people who are not like, there's a harshness here, I think. Right? I mean, just spend some time on the road if you want to encounter it, right? Because it's, it will be all around you. And by the way, it might be sitting in the driver's seat where you are sitting. You might have a sense of that harsh. And people have the rage that people experience, and then they're throwing things out the window and, and, and all the rest. And people are inconsiderate and selfish and proud. And this is, it just seems like there's, there's, there's this challenge that we face in this land in which we live. And in light of that, imagine a community of people that lived in that society that were just su- submissive to the authorities. And people who were, who were engaged in, in doing good in the community. A community of people that, that, just this group of people, they just never slandered anyone. They never spoke evil about anyone. And instead, they were peaceable and considerate. And they, were, they, they would say, those are gentle and kind and loving people who, who, who uh, are considerate to, to everyone without discrimination of whoever they are. And I think that community in that world would co- commend the kindness and the love of God that saved us. That community would be a light in a dark world. And of course, that's the community that the Christians on the island of Crete were to be 2,000 years ago. And that's the community that the people called Hamilton Baptist Church are to be in 2018. So may we, as Paul calls us, citizens of heaven, living under the reign of King Jesus, be so impacted by the grace in which we have received that we would love our country and love our neighbor in a way that resembles the love in which we have received from our Savior. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and the challenge that it is to us. Help us to hear it today. Give us ears to hear it hearts to obey it. Father, I, I, don't, I don't want to speak evil of people who are unlike me. And I trust that's the heart of all those who are yours today. It's so easy to do. It just flies out of my mouth. There may be others like it. Father, may we be courteous May we be kind, may we be loving, because you have been that to us in Jesus. We pray for our friend here this morning that has yet to yield their life to Christ, and we pray that they would be so enthralled at this idea of one who came into the world to pay for their sin by dying on the cross for them, one who had conquered death for them, that even now that they would yield their life and faith to him that they too might experience his love and kindness as we have. May it change us. May we become more like Jesus because of it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.